Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, believe it or not, this is the last Sunday in uh, September. We head to the month of October next, and, and that means a number of things, probably some changes in your schedule at home. It also is going to mean that we're going to be embarking on a new sermon series here at Wildwood that we're calling Seeds. And you may have, have heard this before because over the last year or so, we've been walking through the book of Acts, and we're going to be continuing that series next Sunday, Pastor Bruce We'll be launching us into our third installment in the the Seed series as we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 13 through 28 uh, in the duration of our fall. And so excited for the opportunity for us to look into God's Word together. We're going to be looking at the book of Acts chapters 13 through 28 beginning next Sunday in the seeds of the early church. Uh, But we are today uh, concluding our series on Romans chapters 1 through 3, a series that we have titled Good News. Uh, This series on on Romans is good news because it points us to how God can reconcile sinful people like you and me to himself. And we've seen that in living color, in HD reality over the last seven weeks as we've been looking at uh, these verses together. And today we're going to wrap up that study by looking at uh, chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. But before we open up and look at those verses together, I want to share with you a little bit about my summer. Uh, this last summer, uh, my dad and Josh, uh, my son and I, so three generations of Robinson men, had the opportunity to go to St. Louis. Uh, now, we went to St. Louis in order to visit that large temple in that city uh, known as Bush Stadium and to make our sacrifices there. And, and so we, we went to see the Cardinals play, and we had just a, a great time. I'm really thankful my dad and mom are here with us today. Uh, thankful that we had a chance to go and, and catch a couple of Cardinals games together. Now, if you're going to go all the way to St. Louis, they're only playing the games at night. We ought to do some other stuff, right? So one of the things that we decided that we wanted to do was to go see the Gateway Arch. Uh, this amazing structure rises 630 feet in the air. It's a symbol of westward expansion in the United States, right there on the banks of the Mississippi River. And we decided that we were going to go and we were going to visit. And so Josh and I uh, decided we were going to go down there and we were going to look. Now, believe it or not, 630 feet high, there is an elevator that goes all the way to the top. Now, Josh and I got down there at the base of this thing, and we're looking up at this massive, massive structure, and it's a little intimidating to look at. I mean, it looks like a a partial inverted hula hoop, and we're going to go up in that thing, right? And so, thankfully, for people like us, there is an opportunity to watch a film in the base of the arch that lets you know how they built it. And it actually was very instructional, and it was very helpful. Uh, The the arch was actually built, there's this, this veneer that you see on the outside, but on the inside of that is all kinds of rebar and steel, and Mike Hargis can explain it to you later. It's beautiful, and, and concrete that's poured in there, and it is, it is rigid, and it is strong, and it is built to withstand earthquakes. It's built to withstand tornadoes. It's built to withstand hurricanes, and, and there it is, and after watching this video, it increases your confidence that you can go up into the arch and not die. Now, I tell you that story today because today we're going to be looking 
at a section of God's Word, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31, that, that really show us the nuts and bolts of our salvation. They show us the engineering of our eternity. They show us the, the scaffold that holds up sinners like ourselves and ushers us into salvation. How God did it, how God does it, is described for us in Romans 3, 21 through 31. And I believe that God gave it to us in this way so that we would have the faith to trust Him and go up in it, believing that it is secure. So today we're going to look at Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. If you've got a Bible, you can take it out and open to Romans 3. I'm going to be reading these verses for us, and then we're going to back up and, and walk through them uh, more slowly to see a couple of things today about the engineering of our eternity. Romans 3, verse 21 says this. Paul writes and says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now, in these 11 verses, we're going to see two things today about the scaffolding that supports sinners like us and leads us to salvation. The first thing we're going to see is found in verses 21 through 26, and it is this. Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. Now, in order for us to effectively understand that point and what Paul is saying beginning in verse 21, again, we need to orient ourselves to the full context of Romans 1 through 3. As we've done each and every Sunday in this series, we need to go back and remind ourselves of the truth of Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. This is Paul's central thesis. This is the reason for his writing. He wanted to encourage us that there is good news in Jesus Christ. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel or the good news. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Again, the point that Paul is reminding us of there is that we have a need for salvation, and that salvation comes to us in this 
incredibly good news situation where God is willing to reveal his righteousness to us. He's willing to give it to us, not on the basis of our performance, but on the basis of what Jesus has done as we receive that in faith. And the reason why we need God's righteousness to be revealed or manifest to us is because we have no righteousness on our own. Again, we have seen this problem each week looking at Romans chapter 1, verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The reality is that all of us are ungodly. All of us are unrighteous. None of us are perfect. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. In different ways, all of us are sinners. And because of that, Paul lets us know that there are consequences for our sin, and the consequences that we have for our sin is that we find ourselves under the wrath of God. The seriousness of this statement cannot be exaggerated. Sinful people find themselves under God's wrath. And as if we we needed an argument, Paul spent from chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, making an argument as to why all of us indeed are sinners. John Stott describes this section accurately for us when he says this. He says, All human beings of every race and rank, of every creed and culture, Jews and Gentiles, the immoral and the moralizing, the religious and the irreligious, are without any exception sinful, guilty, inexcusable, and speechless before God. That was the terrible predicament described in Romans 1.18 through 3.20. There was no ray of light, no flicker of hope, no prospect of rescue. The situation of humanity apart from Christ is recipients of his wrath with no hope. No ray of light. But when we get to Romans chapter 3 and verse 21, we notice a marked change in the conversation. After reminding us of our sin and of our brokenness, In chapter 3, verse 21, we're going to be reminded of the hope that we can have. Paul begins this verse by saying, but now. Those are two beautiful and wonderful words. They draw a contrast from our sin and the wrath that it deserves to something wonderful that God is going to do for us. He's getting ready to pull back the curtain and show us how God is able to give us his righteousness. He says, but now. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. This is very similar language to what we saw in 1, 16 and 17. The hope that we have is not in our ability to adhere to some moral standard. It's not in our ability to follow even God's word as we read it in the Old Testament. Because none of us are able to keep our moral standard. None of us are able to keep even God's law of the Old Testament perfectly. We all fall short in different ways and consistently. And because of that, we need a manifestation of God's righteousness that goes apart from the law. Because if it's tied to the law, it's tied to your performance, and none of us are good enough. But there is a revelation, a manifestation of God's righteousness that is available to us that is apart from the law. Even though the law and the prophets, he says, bear witness to it. 
what Paul is saying is, is that the Old Testament, though we can't achieve it, the Old Testament in its laws and in its prophecies and in its history actually pointed towards the fact that one day God would send a substitute. One day God would send a Messiah who would provide a way for God's righteousness to be given to us by faith. That was God's plan all along. Though it is not, though God's righteousness given to us is apart from the law, it is not inconsistent with what the law promised, that God would give a substitute. Verse 22 talks more about this righteousness, and it says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, I'm going to venture onto some dangerous territory here, and I'm going to retranslate that verse for you uh, using some different words. I say it's dangerous territory because I believe that the people who translated the ESV version of the New Testament are smarter than me. Um, I believe that they understand Greek better than I do. Um, but, I, but I will tell you that I think that chapter 3, verse 22 has an alternate translation, which the grammar allows for and the vocabulary allows for, and which I think is actually what Paul intended here. What it says, I believe, in an alternate translation is that the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. In other words, this alternative of the manifestation of God's righteousness that is apart from the law comes through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. It comes through the fact that Jesus lived a perfectly faithful life. Jesus was 100% obedient. Jesus honored God from the moment he was born to the moment he died on the cross through the resurrection. Jesus was perfect. He has a faithfulness record that is 100%. And because of that, There was a righteousness that was demonstrated through Jesus' faithfulness that God wants to give to you and to me. And he wants to give it to us as we believe in him. Part of the reason why I, I like that translation is because otherwise it seems like he repeats himself twice there. It says, if it's through faith in Christ for those who believe, he says the same thing twice. I think the reality, it's the it's the faithfulness of Christ. His righteous life, his perfect life, his 100% record through his life from birth to grave, that is what God wants to give to us in order that we might experience eternal life. God wants to give us Jesus' faithfulness if we would just believe in him. And it's important that we also remember what it says there at the end of 22 and through 23. There's no distinction All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We need this righteousness again because we have none of it on our own. I think it's interesting. How many of you have have ever quoted this verse, Romans 3.23, to somebody else or had it quoted to you by somebody in in a conversation uh, focusing on Jesus in some way, shape, or form? Anybody ever? Hopefully lots of hands go up in this instance, right? This is a, a very common verse for us to use. And I think what's, what's helpful when we see it in this context, studying all of Romans 1 to 3, is we see that this is no proof text. We haven't cherry-picked Romans 3.23 and, and used it for our own devices. Romans 3.23 is an accurate summary, an accurate description of everything that Paul has said from chapters 1 through 3. If you have ever had this verse quoted to you or quoted it to somebody else 
In fact, you're not sharing with them one verse, but three chapters of God's Word, reminding us of our need for God's righteousness because we have none on our own. Well, after that setup, after that introduction, Paul is going to begin to unpack what are the, 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 the engineering documents behind our salvation. And he's going to do that by mentioning a number of words that are very helpful for us to look at in a more in-depth kind of a way. The first word we see there is the word justified in 24, that we are justified by His grace. Now, what does it mean to be justified? This is a, a word that, that clearly is a biblical word. It's used a number of times, especially by Paul in the book of Romans, but it's a, used in other New Testament books. It's also a, a word that has legal ramifications. Outside of the biblical context, to be justified uh, has the, the weight of a judge making a declaration about someone. You are guilty or you are innocent. If a judge were to say, you are, you are innocent, you are righteous. That declaration would be called a justification in some way. Justification is something separate and distinct from forgiveness. Forgiveness is God not holding our sin against us, but justification is something more. A number of writers in history have, have reflected on this idea of justification in ways that are very helpful for us. Marcus Lone says this about it. He says, the voice that spells forgiveness will say, you may go. You have been let off the penalty which your sin deserves. But the verdict, which means acceptance or justification, will say, you may come. You are welcome to all my life and my presence. Isn't that beautiful? We think about what justification is. It's, it's not just God not holding our sin against us, but it's God declaring us righteous so that we might have fellowship with Him, so that we might have a relationship with Him. Charles Hodge talked about this distinction a little more, and he says, pardon and justification, therefore, are essentially distinct. The one is the remission of punishment. The other is a declaration that no ground for the infliction of the punishment exists. Why do we call what Jesus did for us good news? Because in Christ, we find a way for the things that we are ashamed of, the things that we are, are fearful of, the things we hope nobody finds out about us, the, the failures of our lives, the, the brokenness of our lives. In Christ, there's a way for God to, to look at us and not consider those things. For God to, to look at us and instead of seeing the things that we've done, He sees what Jesus did. When we are justified in Jesus' name, God says, you are righteous because I'm not looking at your resume, I'm looking at Jesus' resume. Tim Keller uses this illustration effectively when he, he talks about justification in like a job setting. You can imagine if you were to go and to apply for a job, a job that you wanted, you would prepare a resume. And on that resume, you would include your education and your grade point average, and you would in include your job experience that's relevant, and you would include references who could vouch for your character and any honors and awards that you might have won. You would prepare all of that on a resume, and you would give it to your hopeful employer that they would look at that resume and think that you were justified for that position. What we have in eternity is 
we have the opportunity that when we stand before the God of the universe for something that we all want, which is acceptance into eternity, into his presence, we have the option of not giving him our resume, but giving him Jesus' resume. We have the option of not giving him the, res- the resume that we have that shows this dotted track record and this brokenness. We have the opportunity to give him the faithfulness of Christ who lived a perfect life and offers that goodness, that righteousness to be what God sees instead of our failure. When we think about the salvation that is offered to us in Christ that involves a justification It involves God looking at Jesus instead of us, his record instead of ours when it comes to our salvation. That, friends, is good news. He goes on. Not only does he mention justification, but he also mentions that this justification is by his grace as a gift. Other translations have accurately reflected that as as freely by grace. The idea is that that God is giving us a gift without reason and without hope of repayment. God doesn't justify us in Christ because we deserve it. God doesn't justify us in Christ so that we might repay him for it with some act of service. God justifies us in Christ merely because he loves us and he wants to extend his grace to us. It's part of his character. He offers us justification merely out of his own character, not out of our performance. Freely by his grace, we have been justified. The next word that he gives there that shows us this this scaffolding around our salvation is the word redemption. The idea of redemption is one of of a payment being made, setting someone free. In the first century, there were a, a number of slaves in the Roman Empire, and those slaves could actually purchase their freedom for a price. They could pay their master a sum of money. They would be able to purchase their freedom. They would be able to redeem themselves. What Paul is saying here is that in Christ, Jesus has paid it all. Jesus is offering his life as a redemption for us to pay God the price that our sins deserve. And in, in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 tells us that the wages of sin is what? Death. So why did Jesus die? Because he was redeeming us. He was making the payment that our sins deserve. He goes on after mentioning this redemption. He's going to say in verse 25 that God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. That's intimately tied to his declaration of redemption. Propitiation is not a word that we use very often outside of the Bible, uh, but it is a, a very important biblical concept. It's the idea of a payment being made. The propitiation or the payment that our sins deserve was death. Therefore, Jesus, through his blood and through his death, offered a payment or a propitiation equal to our sins. When you think of all of the the physical pain that Jesus endured on the cross, and and we could enumerate it, the the, the whipping and the nailing and and the the exhaustion and the mocking and the 
crown of thorns and all that he endured physically, I believe it is merely a fraction of the pain that Jesus experienced on the cross because it wasn't just a physical act, but it was also a spiritual act. Because it was on the cross that all of the wrath of God for your sins and for mine, for Abraham's sins in the Old Testament, all the way to future generation sins, all of the wrath of God for all of those sins was placed upon Jesus on the cross so that God's wrath concerning sin could be fully propitiated, fully paid, so that we might be forgiven. You know, many times we, we spend our lives running around scared, scared that somehow God will remember the wrong that we have done and that he will still have some wrath stored up for that wrong that he will want to then zap us with. That if God somehow remembered that night, that weekend, that season in our lives, that that suddenly the wrath of God would flare up and it would zap us in that moment. We live our lives fearful of that. And the reason why we do is because we've never come to grips with the fact that the wrath of God for our sins was fully satisfied when Jesus died on the cross, fully paid for, not in part, not in installments, fully paid for at that point. And it was a definitive historical act that took place in the first century when Jesus died on the cross. But it was through that one historical act that God provided a way for the wrath of he had towards sin to be satisfied for all time. Look at what he says at the end of 25 and verse 26. He says, this was this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, God didn't just forget our sin and didn't just, just, just look the other way. God had to deal with it. And if he didn't deal with our sin, he wouldn't be just. But God is fully just because he took all of our sin and he put the the wrath that he had for that sin on Jesus on the cross and he fully paid for it there so that we might be forgiven. Have you ever come to grips with the idea that Jesus paid it all? He paid it all, not just historically, but he paid it all for you so that you might be able to hand God one day a resume that is not your own marked by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, not by our faithlessness, but by his faithfulness. That's what God is offering us in Christ. Jesus paid it all. Second thing we need to see, though, in this is is this. Embrace the good news by faith. Embrace the good news by faith. You know, throughout this entire section of Scripture, going all the way back to chapter 1, verse 17, but certainly in these verses we've seen today from chapter one or 3, verse 21 through 31, Paul is focused on faith as the means by which the forgiveness of Christ is credited to our account. It's not on the basis of our works, it's on the basis of, of us receiving in faith what God is offering us in Christ. We see this in verse 22, 25, 26, 27, 28, 30, and 31. In all of those verses, in all of those seasons and sessions, it is faith and belief that Paul comes back to again and again and again. It's so important for us to remember that. And keep in mind, it's not about how strong our faith is. Because Jesus said that faith as small as a mustard seed is all that it takes. 
It is not how strong we are in our faith. It's how strong he is and the one that we have faith in. Richard Hooker in the, the 16th century said this about that. He says, God justifies the believer not because of the worthiness of his belief, but because of his, meaning Christ's, worthiness who has believed. Our salvation rests in the strength of Christ, not in ourselves. John Stott reflects on this further as he describes Christianity in a beautiful way. He says, no other system, ideology, or religion proclaims a free forgiveness and a new life to those who have done nothing to deserve it, but a lot to deserve judgment instead. On the contrary, all other systems, all other religions, teach some form of self-salvation through good works of religion, righteousness, or philanthropy. Christianity, by contrast, is not in its essence a religion at all. It is a gospel, the gospel, good news that God's grace has turned away his wrath, that God's son has died our death and borne our judgment, that God has mercy on the undeserving and that there is nothing left for us to do or even contribute. Faith's only function is to receive what grace offers. We're here today to talk about the good news of Jesus Christ, who justifies us, who redeems us, who paid it all, and asks that we merely place our faith in him. Now, I want to take us back to St. Louis. Josh and I decided that we wanted to go to the arch, and we go down to the arch, and we go down underneath the, the ground at the base of the arch, and we watch the film, and we become educated as to how sturdy that arch really is. But you know what? Just being educated about the sturdiness of the arch did not get us to the top of it. At, at some point, we had to say, you know what? I think it's going to hold. And we had to, to walk up and get in line and get on an elevator and ride it all the way to the top. The ultimate expression of, of our faith in the construction of the 1960s. And, and we get to the top, and, and there's Josh, 630 feet in the air. Uh, I, I'm beside him. And uh, we were, were looking out. And when you, when you take this trip and you get to the top, you get to see this incredible view of East St. Louis, Illinois. Um, what a breathtaking view from the top of the arch uh, as, as we got to the top and as, as, as we looked out. Um, here's the deal. Here's the deal, folks. Had we not gotten on the elevator, we would have never been able to experience the arch together. And you know what? I think the reality is that many, many times people come underground into the church we watch the film and we get educated as to how sturdy a salvation is found in Christ. But what a tragedy if we never get on the elevator. What a tragedy if we never place our faith and our trust in Christ. What a tragedy if we never agree to, to hand the God of the universe the resume of Jesus, which is available to us, and instead want to give him our own failures and shortcomings. The good news in Jesus Christ is that we have an opportunity to allow 
his life to be righteousness for us. We have the opportunity for his death to satisfy God's wrath. 